Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. When Robert Schiller was a teenager at the University of Michigan, he read a book that left a lasting impression. It was about the 1920s and the stock market crash of 29. Schiller would become an economist who loved history. One of the great pleasures we have now is the ability to read old newspapers so you can immerse yourself into any date in the past. And the first recognition is that people were awfully similar back then. Around 2000, decades after he'd read that book about what led to the Great Depression and had long since become a well-known economist, he warned the stock market seemed dangerously inflated. What followed was the painful bursting of the dot-com bubble and an argument that Schiller believes in strongly. The tales we tell ourselves about money, they matter. You can't understand how to stimulate the economy in purely mechanical terms, as some people are doing these days. It has something to do with the personality, with the stories told that we're circulating, that are going viral at any particular time. Schiller went on to win the Nobel Prize in economics, and he's the author of the book Narrative Economics. In that book, he writes about stories people told at the dinner table in the 1920s, stories of getting rich quick, of being able to buy a nice home in the country, of investing in companies that, well, the investors didn't really understand, but they understood stocks were the ticket to riches. Now, in 2021, we happen to live at a moment when the cost of housing has spiked because of the pandemic, and when stocks have been on a tear, even as unemployment has surged. It's a strange time. And I talked to Bob Schiller a couple of days before the mob broke into the Capitol building on January 6th. What that event showed us, as have all recent events, is that it pays to look at more than just the numbers. So what people talk about matters. I mean, people know that. A lot of people, journalists know that better than academic economists. We like to get involved with the numbers. What did the Federal Reserve do at their last FOMC meeting? That's concrete. These stories are so nebulous and changing all the time that people are telling. But yes, I think that the Donald Trump era, he is Mm. a rather flamboyant uh, businessman with a personal sense of style. Even people who don't like him are still influenced by him and by the atmosphere that he has generated. Maybe you can situate this for me in history, but one of the weird things about this moment is that it does feel like there's this bifurcation where the the housing market's on a tear, the stock market's basically on a tear, it has been for many months. Um, but but uh, you also feel like you know, there are tremendous lines at food pantries. Lots and lots of people have lost their jobs and their health insurance. Is that normal? Is this a weird time in American history? It is a weird time. The answer to that is yes, it's a weird time. I'm comparing it to the 1930s when we had the Great Depression. Home prices fell, but they didn't really fall much in real terms. They kind of held up despite the crash in the stock market. So it's not like the stock market and the housing market go in lockstep together. Yeah, the real estate price collapse in 2007, 2009 was not matched closely by the stock market either. 
But I wonder if you think there's a danger that people are piling into the stock market thinking, well, I mean, since the last big downturn in 2009, the market has just about tripled. Um, or even if you go all the way back to uh, the dot-com bubble in 1999, the market has come so far since then, I don't want to miss out now. The narrative in 2000 was a new millennium narrative and about the internet and about yes. new adventuresome companies driven by people who take risks and who don't care about making money now. This is a moment in time. 1999 was a moment when the world was incurring a huge technological transformation that would right. bring in all kinds of internet businesses. So we had the dot-com boom driven by that story. We do have something somewhat similar to the dot-com boom story, and that is about the increasing importance of digital communication in our lives. And the uh, stocks that are exciting now are the Googles and Alphabet and other right. communication services, artificial intelligence websites. It's one reason why the U.S. stock market is the most expensive market in the world right now, because that's our specialty. We're innovators in the uh, space of computer technology. So uh, I think that this may have a wilder run, that the stock market might even set new records for the uh, price-earnings ratio before long. But even now, even if it might go up, um, does it feel wild to you? Does it feel like too much? Well, I do questionnaire surveys of yeah. both individual and institutional investors to learn their attitudes. And I can tell you that they feel worried about it. So we have a question about the risk of a 1929-style or 1987-style crash. Okay. And I can tell you that people are, both individual and institutional investors, have gotten a lot more worried about that in the last year or so. And it's almost, uh, I, I have data back to 1989. And it's, for individual investors, it's at a record low now. Confidence that there won't be a crash is at a low. And that, that makes us vulnerable to a crash. It's like a pre-existing condition. You know, the uh, COVID virus doesn't affect everyone the same. Some right. people have illnesses or, or they're old or whatever, right. Uh, right. and they are vulnerable. I think we are collectively vulnerable now because of this fear of in the back of our minds that I also, my survey data shows that people are, believe the market is highly priced. That's a general attitude. They just think it's going to be even higher priced uh, as they thought in 1929 before the crash. And you've said you think uh, narratives can change, not just whether we put money into the stock market or like withdraw it in a panic. They can also change policy, like government policy. The policies that are passed are reflecting of the narratives of the time. Okay. So, for example, until the 1890s, we didn't even have the word unemployment. Did you know that? There was no, no. unemployment. They, talked, okay. they used the word idle. Idle workers, that sounds like lazy workers. Right. And you think, well, it's their own fault. You know, in fact, back then in the 1890s, they would talk about drunkenness. And uh, dipsomania was the word for addiction to alcohol. And so these people bring it on themselves. But starting in the 1890s, the word unemployment, involuntary unemployment started to appear. And it got the, a recognition that some people just can't help it. The economy goes into a tailspin. And then suddenly, you're being evicted from your apartment for non-payment of rent. 
and you're willing to work, but no one wants to hire you. That became strongly into the narrative during the 1930s. It didn't help people spend more because they became fearful of that. But that narrative brought the New Deal and it brought much more progressive taxes. Well, that and World War II, which made uh, much more appearance of heroism, men dying for their country. And so we went through a period in the 1950s, 60s, and a little bit beyond of compassion for people who, for no fault of their own, are faced with economic hardship. And I think that there's hope that that same sense of compassion will return after the COVID-19 and will last for some years. So when you think, I wonder when you kind of add the stock market back into this and how well it's been doing, I feel like um, it has ignored, maybe maybe that's just sort of the way it is and it it's, doesn't matter to the stock market, but does it matter that we could be facing amongst, you know, the folks that you were talking about, people who have lost out economically but have been doing heroic things? Um, you know, we could be facing a wave of evictions. We could be facing just huge amounts of hardship that we were only starting to see. But as this drags on longer and longer, the pain is going to be really tremendous. Well, I'm not forecasting that, but I think it's a possibility. It's a risk that we have to be attentive. So I've been advocating for 10 years now that Congress should pass contingency plans for that if it would happen. Automatic tax increases on the rich and lowering or negative taxes on the poor. Uh, this mm-hmm. may sound like a radical proposal. We'll have to see. How, I have not been successful with it. But I think that in the future years, if this tendency toward inequality and and increasing suffering of the people who weren't so lucky, I think it may bring on more of a willingness to consider such things. Uh, finally, um, I just wonder, as you sit back and you think about the last, oh, I guess maybe 10 months now, um, since you've, we've really been in the in the heat of the pandemic and you've seen it unfold around you, and I'm guessing you've probably mostly been home, right? You're right. I'm yeah. a cautious person. <laughs> yeah. So so when you think about what you've seen, can you just tell me about it? Like, I, I mean, fi- particularly financially, but like what is going what do you think is happening around you? And you just have so much more of a knowledge of history than most of us. Um, I wonder, if, like, you know, how you analyze what you see. Well, it's a long story. I compare this epidemic with the 1918 influenza epidemic. The influenza epidemic of 1918-1919 did produce a mild recession in 1918. But it was mild. People were doing the same thing. They were isolating. uh, They were wearing face masks. But it didn't seem to have the intensity that it does now. Uh, And I'm thinking that you have to understand that this is not a unique event. Uh, Epidemics have occurred so many times in history, but Mm -hmm. we tend to forget about them and rediscover them in a different light each time. In the 1918 influenza epidemic, it occurred right at the time of the end of World War I. uh, And there was this tremendous preoccupation with World War I. One more thing, it just seemed anticlimactic. I I think they were numbed to death and destruction. Mm -hmm. 
it didn't have the same impact of having everyone staying home. Also, they didn't have medical authorities that were as persuasive as Fauci is, for example, at that time. He's a, a powerful narrative. He's become a national hero, not uniformly admired, but everyone knows him. And there wasn't a Fauci back in 1918. So the narrative is always changing qualitatively. And so this the current narrative, it came in coincidence with the polarization politically, which is so strong, uh, and a, a loss of trust in uh, our national institutions, and anger, underlying anger. So it's filtered through differently. Uh, and I don't know what the lesson is for the next uh, pandemic, Everything depends on the constellation of narratives that are floating at a particular point of time. Bob Schiller teaches economics at Yale. He's the author of Narrative Economics and a winner of the 2013 Nobel Prize in Economics. Bob, thank you so much. This is great. It was nice talking to you, Kara. On our website, we're going to have more about that strange separation between a housing and a stock market that have pretty much been on fire and an economic landscape that's been a lot shakier. Plus, we'll have links to the data that Bob Schiller mentioned that he's collected for years on how worried individual and professional investors are about a 1929-style crash. That's all at innovationhub.org. And a big welcome this week to our listeners on New England Public Media. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks also to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.